I will take responsibility for the confusion uh, because I'm the one who threw a wrench in our normal, uh, our normal worship service. We're doing things a little bit differently this morning. We're going to start doing them differently. Um, giving or the giving moment has always seemed a little bit out of place to me in front of the sermon. Uh, because I feel like we give in response to what God has said. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to try out, especially because, you know, whenever we change things, we're creatures of habit. So it always kind of throws us off. But we're going to move the offering moment to after the sermon. So we're going to hear from God's word first. And then after the sermon, we're going to respond to God through worship and giving. So that's why, uh, that's why Jennifer's a little bit confused. That's why... Everybody but me is confused. So, because I knew it was coming and I gave uh, not enough fair warning. All right. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Be in Exodus chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we invite you to grab one out of the, the row in front of you there. Um, should be on page number 54, Exodus 12. I'm going to start reading in verse... 29 uh, through to 40. If you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Exodus, um, this this sermon, this passage is really the second part of what we talked about last week, uh, because last week we began talking about the Passover and this this special meal, and now we come to the the hard part of the Passover, what the Passover was meant to protect the people of Israel from. And that was the death of the firstborn. And so let me just recap for a second uh, as we go into reading this passage. Let me just kind of recap what we saw last week. Um, the Passover meal, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Passover meal was this Jewish observance. And it was meant to commemorate or remember the event of the Passover. And what would happen is, or what happened in Egypt, is God commanded his people to take a lamb, a, a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish, a year old, and to slaughter it, and to roast it, and to eat it. And to take its blood and paint it on the door of their houses. And what that was, it was a sign of God's rescue, right? That anybody who had the blood on their door was safe from God's judgment. That is, God passed through Egypt to judge Egypt. Um, he would pass over the people. He would pass over the homes where there was blood on the door. And so now we come to the point in the story, a hard point in the story, but uh, the actual moment itself, the moment when Israel gets out of Egypt. And so if you would, let's give attention to God's Word, Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. 
The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they'd asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they brought out of Egypt For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that believe your promises, hearts that believe what we hear Lord, we are stubborn and it's difficult for us to remember. And so, God, would you help us? Would you help these words, your very words, to bear into our hearts and to change us from the inside out? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did something that I don't usually do. I kind of changed my sermon completely at the last minute. So I like totally reversed what I was going to preach just because I didn't like it. So if I look like I'm fumbling around like a doofus up here, it's because what's on the notes in front of me is different from what's about to come out of my mouth. But I'm going to try to find my place and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. All right. We're going to do something a little bit different. Usually we kind of start at the beginning of a passage and we work our way through. But we're actually going to begin at the end of what I read and work our way up. And here's why. The Passover moment, uh, the moment that the lamb's blood is spilled and the moment that the Lord passes through is really the key moment, right? We saw last week that it was the moment, this moment that defined Israel's existence and identity and history forever. Right. I mean, still, if you were to befriend an Orthodox Jew, they still faithfully observe this memorial. Right. God even told them. Right. We saw this last week where he said, your year will begin at this moment. Right. This will be a new year for you. This will be a new month for you. The Passover month is the beginning of your year. So important was this feast. So important was the Passover. So we're going to so we're going to look, we're going to work our way backwards from the passage up back towards the Passover, because there's some things I want us to see. And I want to finish on a certain note. So. We're going to look at this under three headings. First, Passover means that God is watching. God is watching. 
God is watching over his people. Passover means that God provides for his people's needs. And Passover means that God defeats his and our enemies. Right. So Passover is uh, means God is watching and keeping his promises. Passover means God provides for his people need people's needs. And Passover means God defeats his and our enemies. And remember what we said last week that the Passover was the great symbol, the great sign of God's rescue of his people. And I want you to I want you to bear that in mind, because the whole reason we're going through Exodus is is because this is not just a story for them. This is not just a Jewish story or an Israelite story. It's not just a it's not just a nifty Old Testament story, but the salvation that God worked through the Exodus is just a foretaste. It's just foreshadowing the salvation that God works in us now through Jesus Christ. And we see that most clearly in the Passover lamb. As John would say of Jesus, John the Baptist says of Jesus, he is the lamb uh, slain for the sins of the world, who takes away the sins of the world. So, with that in mind, Passover means God is watching and keeping his promises. Look at, look at verse uh, 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. I haven't done the math recently, but that's a whole lot longer than America has been in existence. So our cultural memory is not nearly as long as what the Israelites in Egypt have uh, have been through. All right. We I mean, think about it, especially if you're if you're young. Right. All you've ever known is this place. Right. Like we're um, we, we hopefully still some teach American history. And it seems like, man, that's really been a long, long time. And it has been a long time, and yet Israel was in Egypt for longer. So uh, Israel was in Egypt for 430 years, and it's at the end of that time, the very day of the Passover, that all the hosts, that's like a, that's a, that's a kind of a Bible word, isn't it? Host, is anybody, like, are we talking about the guy with the towel on his arm who greets you at the door, right? No, that's not what the, that's not what the word host means. The word host means armies or regiments, Right? And so already you're getting this language that the Israel is being pictured as an army, right? The armies or the regiments of the Lord are coming out of, went out from the land of Egypt. And then it says something interesting. It was a night of watching by the Lord, a night of watching. Some of you may be old enough to have uh, sat up with a deceased loved one. We don't really do that anymore, but at some point in our history, when a loved one died, you sat up with them. They actually kept the casket in your house. It's a little strange to me, but uh, that's, not, that's not all that foreign to some of, to some of you. Um, right? The idea of keeping watch, of keeping a vigil, like this was, this was something important. What was the Lord doing, right? When you, when you hear the text say it was a night of watching, what do you think that's referring to? I want you to remember uh, that in the ancient world, uh, seldom did anything good happen at night. Night was in the, when the robbers were out. Night was when you wanted to stay in. Pretty much when the sun went down, you didn't have electricity. You went to sleep, right? Because it was dark and there wasn't a whole lot of light to see by. And yet in all these events, 
In all of this lamb blood smearing, firstborn dying, what we learn about the whole thing is that the Lord is watching. As one rural preacher said, God works the night shift. Right? That um, as the psalmist would say, I can lay down my head and rest because God neither slumbers nor sleep. He, he who protects Israel does not sleep. And there's a beautiful truth in this, that as all of these people, right, um, conservative estimates are 2 million. If there are 600,000 fighting men, that's what that number, that, that word for men there, doesn't refer to all the men, just refers to those who can fight, because again, this is an army. So 600,000 fighting men, that puts it, if that number's right, that puts it at 2 million people. As 2 million people leave their homes in the middle of the night and begin making this journey, I mean, can you just think of all of the, the details, all of the anxieties? We're leaving our homes behind. And what does Moses say? It's a night of watching by the Lord. The Lord is watching over his people. He is taking care of them. He is guiding them. He's leading them out into the wilderness. And as a response, it says, so... This night is kept as a night of watching to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. They are to remember this night by watching him, right? By, by remembering what God has done. What an important word that word is, remember. In fact, used to on our, on our communion table, and if you uh, have seen many communion tables, right? Uh, do this in remembrance of me. Remember is so important. Because we are so prone to forget, right? We are, so, we are so prone to fall in love with the novel. We are so prone to forget what God has done. And yet God tells them at the very outset of this whole ordeal, remember this day for future generations. Teach your children about this. Change your calendar year because that's how important this is. I watched over you and brought you out. And so I want you to watch me. Keep your eyes on me. Remember me. The Lord keeps his promises. All these things that are happening right now in this passage, they're all things that the Lord foretold. So if you would, let's, let's just go back a little bit and see some of these promises. If you flip backwards to Exodus 3, 19 and 20. This is God speaking to Moses before Moses even goes into Egypt. And he says this, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So it's pretty remarkable that everything that's happened to the Israelites over the course of chapters 9 through 11, all of it, right? At the, at the end of almost each passage, it says, and the Lord did, just as he said. And the Lord did, just as he said. The beauty of the God who watches Israel is that he is a promise-keeping God. Whatever he says he will do, that he will do. And so he did. He knew that Pharaoh would not let them go. And so he said, I'm going to keep bringing my wonders against Pharaoh. I'm going to keep striking Pharaoh. I'm going to keep punching Egypt until Egypt relents. So from the plagues, even, even to the plundering. Look at 3.21. I will give 
this people, the Egyptians, favor, excuse me, I will give this people, the Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you will not go out empty, but each woman will ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You'll put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God does exactly what he says he's going to do. But Moses is not the first one to hear these promises. This is not new with Moses. It actually goes back a few centuries before Moses. Flip back with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis 15. Genesis 15, look at verse 13. God is making a covenant with this man named Abram, who we would come to know as Abraham. He's making a deal. He's making promises to Abram. And there, this, is the, this is at the end of a formal ceremony between the two of them. And here's what it says. Abraham falls into a, a sleep, a, a deep sleep. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Hundreds of years before he'd ever spoken to Moses, God had already told Abram what was going to happen. This, is, this has been a plan a long time in the making. God is keeping his promises, not just the plagues, but also the plunder. But there's actually a promise even further back that this is built on. Flip back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Just before that, Genesis 1 through 11, really 3 through 11, is basically just one story of failure after another, one story of brokenness after another. And then we have the first meeting between the Lord and Abram. Abram's never met God before. He's never worshipped God before. He doesn't even know who God is. Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse." And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why do, I, why do I do that kind of quick fly-through history lesson? To show that beginning with Abram, God made promises. God made promises to bless the world through this one man, Abram, and his family. And God's favor rests so heavily upon Abram that he even says, Whoever blesses you, I will bless. So if somebody... If somebody is kind to you, if they want to be a part of you, then they receive your blessing. But if someone comes against you, if someone curses you, then they are against me. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. So now, trace that, trace that spiral forward. God makes that promise to Abram. And then he meets Abram again later on and says, Here's what's going to happen to your offspring. 
right? What Abram wanted most of all, and what you would have wanted in the ancient world more than anything, is land. Because to have land meant that you were a people, that you had a place, right? And so what God promises to give Abram is this place. But then he tells Abram in this dream, hey, listen, that place that your people are going to have, they're going to be out of it for 400 years. They're not going to get it quite yet. And in fact, they're going to be slaves. They're going to be afflicted in another place for 400 years. But don't worry. I will bring judgment on those who afflict them. Because I said, whoever curses you, I will curse. And I will bring you into the land of promise. I will bring you into the land of promise with great wealth. So hundreds, literally hundreds of years before this event happens, it was already foretold, right? Plagues and the plunder are part of the promise. And so God watches over his people and keeps his promises. And that's important to know because they came into Egypt 70 people. And they're leaving, if our count is right, they're leaving at 2 million. God has kept his promises, right? He told, he, told Abraham, he told Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. And now this nation is leaving their oppressor, right? I will make you into a people. God is keeping his promises to Abram. God is watching and has been watching over his people. God not only watches and keeps his promises, God also, Passover means that God provides for his people's needs. Go back to uh, Exodus 12 and take a look in verse, verse 33. We'll start there. It says, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out. Uh, literally, the word is strong or Hardened, they were resolved. You can imagine why, right? They had, they had already been through nine uh, devastating plagues. And so you can imagine that the Egyptians were hard-pressed to get these Israelites out. They wanted them gone. They wanted to move them in haste. You get the picture that they were almost kind of coming through door to door like, all right, good to go. What do you need? What else? Can I get you a car? What can I get you? Like, let's get out the door. Move on. Let's please. Right. And they say, right, they want to move them on in haste because they say, we'll all be dead. If you stay here, we will all be dead. Right. It won't just be uh, it won't just be the first the firstborn. We shall all be dead. So they wanted them out and they move them along so quickly that all the people can do is basically just throw their unleavened dough in the bread bowl, wrap it up in their cloaks and toss it over their shoulder and head out. Right. No time to, to plan about the journey. No time. Right. It literally says there in uh, 39, the end of verse 39, they were thrust out of Egypt and could not nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Here's what's remarkable about that. God is going to provide for them in the wilderness. They're leaving without any of their own stuff. They don't even have time to let the bread rise, right? They just have to throw, it in the, throw the dough in the bowl and throw it over their shoulders and get out. And so, moms, right, wives, you know this. How in the, like, you've you got to be thinking, maybe the dads were too at that point, right? How in the world are we going to feed our kids? How in the world are we going to feed our family? This is, I mean, this is, this is home. 
This is where, I mean, we, they've been there for four centuries. It's where I grew up. It's where my parents grew up. It's where my grandparents grew up. We talked about this last week. That Passover, that, the, that this thing called Passover, that this new life, also means you've got to leave some things behind. So this is actually a mark of God's grace that they have to get out in a hurry. Because I don't know about you, but I don't do anything in a hurry. There were no committee meetings. There was no planning. There was no strategy that said, all right, God, you're right. We do need to get out of Egypt. Um, can we kind of draw up a strategy for how we're going to do this? Maybe the first wave will go and they'll set up camp and then the second wave. And, you know, because, I mean, we've been here a long time. I mean, if it was up to them, do you think they ever would have left? Maybe they would have just said, you know, God, uh, Egypt's been rough, but can you just maybe soften the, the yoke a little bit? We'll stay here. But, you know, we just want life to be better. Maybe they'll pay us. Maybe if they just pay us, we can stay. But the Lord says, that's not how this works. If you're mine, we've got to go, and we've got to go now. You literally have to be thrust out. And maybe that was your experience if you've come to know Christ, that you found yourself actually thrust out of your old life. It was really the only way the Lord could sever those ties with your old life. In fact, we said this last week, right? The people will continue to want the old life. They'll continue to want to go back. And so they have to live. It's good for them. It's good for us to live on unleavened bread. But that's not the only way that the Lord provides for his people. Look at verse 36. The Lord had given the people favor, the, the word we use for grace, that same Hebrew word. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Right? Moses had told them to ask the Egyptians for silver and gold and uh, clothing. And it says, so they plundered the Egyptians. They've got a long trek across the Sinai Peninsula. There are no settlements there. And so how are they to survive? They've now been simply given all of this wealth that they can trade and barter for, right? They're not able to take all of their possessions with them, uh, or they're taking what they can, and then the Egyptians just load them down with more, right? So the Lord provides for his people on the road. They will have what they need for this journey ahead. And it's interesting, he uses the word plunder, in the ancient world, right, if, uh, up until even very recently, when a conquering army came through and devastated a land, they would plunder it, right? They would, they would take its best for themselves. That's, that was just the nature of being an army in the ancient world. If you were the victor, to you belong the spoils. Well, Israel is victorious. She gets the spoils. But do you know what's remarkable? She doesn't do any of the fighting. This victorious army, these victorious regiments, they're marching out. And they're marching out with the plunder. But God is the one who's done the fighting for them. It is God's victory. And he graciously gives these people the rewards of his victory. How true is that of our own salvation, right? Jesus in Ephesians is shown as the conquering king who distributes gifts to all of his people. And what's even cooler about this is that later on down the road, an offering from these gifts will be used to build the tabernacle, right? That when it comes to building the tent where God, where they will worship the Lord, they are to use an offering from these gifts, 
right? So we continue to off, do an offering during our worship service, right? Acknowledging that what we have, we do not have by our own sweat. We have because God has given us. Therefore, we can give back to him an offering. Now, the sad part about that is they will also use an offering from these gifts to break God's commandments. They will make a golden calf and they will, they will engage in false worship before they engage in true. And we'll look more at that when we get there. But God, Passover means that God provides for his people's needs. God is the one who does the work, who ultimately defeats the enemy and his people are the grateful beneficiaries of his goodness. There's one more thing in here that I think is really neat. Verse 38. Let's start in verse 37. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. By the way, that city, Ramesses, was a city that they built as slaves. And they get to leave it. Right? They walk out of the place that they were forced to build. Ramesses to Succoth, 600,000 men, fighting men on foot besides their dependents. And then it says this. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock. Literally, they were heavy with sheep, both flocks and herds. They were heavy on livestock. But a mixed multitude, what is that? What's it talking about? It means there were people, non-Israelite people, who went with them. There were non-Jewish people who had seen what God had done and said, we would rather go with you than stay in Egypt. We would rather belong to your God than belong to Pharaoh. We would rather worship and serve with you, even though we don't necessarily belong, right? We're on the outside of this Jewish thing. We want to we be in. We want to we worship and serve your God rather than the gods uh, that we have been worshiping. So you can see that the Exodus is an evangelistic event. That there are people, a mixed multitude, hangers-on, who have believed who have feared Yahweh and said, we want to be a part of this. What did God promise Abram? I will bless the nations through you. Here we see a mixed multitude from the nations clinging on to Israel as they leave. So that they can worship the Lord. So that they can be blessed by being with Abraham's kids. God rescued through providing for his people Needs, But ultimately, what the Passover tells us is that God defeats his and our enemies. See, in order, in order for Israel to be free, God has to crush the power of Pharaoh. In order for Israel to get out, they have to be let go. And the only way they're going to be let go is that Pharaoh's might lies broken in the dust. And that's what's really going on with the death of the firstborn. This is the final judgment. This is the last blow. It's all been building up to this point, And now it finally comes down. The last strike. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord... Struck down all the firstborn. But you notice something, because kind of popular lore says, oh, there's, there's, there was an angel of death. There is no angel of death. 
The Lord is the one doing the work. The Lord is the one who is coming in judgment. Now, we don't really like that. We like the warm fuzzies and the soft edges. We like the God of steadfast love. And so it's hard for us to deal with a God who passes through in judgment and strikes down the firstborn. But that is who does it. It is the Lord who passes through. There's no, there's no angel of death here. Midnight, the Lord passed through, struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Right? So, God's judgment shows no partiality. From the royal lap of comfort to the darkest, dingiest dungeon, there is no, there is no partiality with God. That his judgment is really one of complete justice. In fact, that's what justice means. To have no partiality. To not play favorites. If you think about Lady Justice, the statue that sits in front of the Supreme Court, right? She holds scales in her hand. And do you know what covers her eyes? A blindfold. Because justice is meant to be blind. And yet so often we know that in our world, justice is not blind. It favors those of means. And punishes those without. That those who aren't as well connected don't usually favor as well when it comes to the court system. A just judge is a terrible thing. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to sit in a courtroom. But the law is not a place where you want to be. The law's sword is not one that you want to sit under. And yet the only thing more terrible than a just judge is an unjust judge. God shows no partiality. His judgment is also complete. It says there's not a house in which someone was not dead. Every house was touched by the judgment of God. And we want to ask the fairness question. Why is this right? Why is this just? And so let's go back just a little bit because that's a fair question. It's a question we should ask. You would go with me back to Exodus 1. Here we see Joseph's family, Israel's family, coming into Egypt. Joseph is a man of power, and so he's able to look out for and protect his fellow kinsmen. Uh, but then Joseph dies. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 1, There arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. If war breaks out, they may join our enemies. So there was fear on the part of Pharaoh and his people. Right? Propaganda, we would call it. Pharaoh stirs up his people against the Israelites saying, Look, they could ally themselves with some other people back east and then conquer Egypt. It'll be bad news. We need to enslave them. And that's what they do. They set, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And yet the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And yet that wasn't enough for Pharaoh. And so... He said in verse 16, 
He told the Hebrew midwives, when you, sit, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. So we go from enslavement to murder, to extermination. This whole slavery thing is not working out. We're oppressing them, but that's not doing the trick. So let's just kill them. Let's kill them on the birth stool, right? Infanticide. The midwives say, no, we're not going to do that. Well, they don't quite say no. They just manage to work it out where they don't do it. Pharaoh realizes it. And so instead, what he tells his people to do, and he, he says, go out to the Hebrews and whoever you find alive, if it's a boy, throw it in the river. Right? And here's what it says at the end of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It was the heart of the people of Israel. They were in pain. They were losing their children. And so they cried out for help. That same word for cry is the word that's used of the Egyptians when they realized that their firstborn are dead. There was a great cry in all the land. God is returning justice on the head of those who unjustly punished his people. A just judge is a terrible thing. And you do not want to come underneath the sword of the law, the sword of wrath. You see, so let's just kind of pause right there. What does all that mean? So what? God's judgment is without partiality. God's judgment is complete. What does that mean? Telling us, it means this, that all of the things that we usually hide behind, all the things that we usually use to position ourselves, our titles, our degrees, our gifts, those aren't bartering chips when it comes to the judgment. You can't hide behind those. Maybe they, maybe, maybe they mean something in this life, what you have. Or what you don't have. Maybe that matters in this little parenthesis called time. But at the end, when we come face to face with the living God, none of it will matter then. All of it will be stripped away. And it will only be you and the judge. What then? What, what will you say to make your case at that point? What could you say? You see, all these plagues are really a foretaste of the judgment to come. If you were to go all the way to the last book of the Bible, what we call Revelation, it's shocking how many of the judgments that are poured out in that book, that's a, a preview of the end, are mirror images of what happens to Egypt. God is showing both Egypt and us that he is the judge and that he is terrible in his wrath. And it is not something that we want to face unshielded. And that's what really brings us back to the Passover. What is it that shields Israel's homes and houses? It's not their goodness. It's not what they've done. It's not what they've left undone. It's not their status as slaves. They're not getting special treatment because they were the slave people and Pharaoh and Egypt were the powerful people. Remember, God's justice is impartial. He is without partiality. No, the only thing safeguarding the homes of the Israelites is the blood of the Lamb. 
When he said there wasn't a house without someone dead in it. That was, that was true of the Israelites too. There was death in the house of the Israelites as well. But it wasn't the death of the firstborn. It was the death of a spotless lamb. And it was that death that covered them, that caused the Lord to pass over. Friend, what about you? What will you say when the living God, when you meet Him face to face, what will you try to offer up as a means to appease His wrath? The only thing that you can offer is the Lamb. The spotless Lamb, whose blood covers not the door of your home, but the heart of your soul. Have you placed yourself in the watch care of Jesus, the Lamb, the great Lamb, the final Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world? If you have, there is nothing to fear. There is no reason to fear judgment. Because judgment has fallen, not on you, but on Him. Just as judgment fell on those lambs as they were slaughtered and bloodied and painted and eaten, that, that was the judgment of God falling on those lambs. So also judgment fell on Christ on the cross. And that, that mercy... Is impartial, just like the judgment is. There's nothing you can do to earn it, and there's nothing you can do to lose it. It's not simply for rich people, it's for poor people. It's not for educated people only, it's for uneducated people as well. It's for farmers and executives, blue-collar, white-collar, doesn't matter. The lamb is for anyone in the house. You just have to trust him. You just have to trust in Jesus and believe on him. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation, there is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to remember, to remember your promises to Abraham, to trust that you are a God who even centuries later makes good on the promises you've made. Lord, help us to 